Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13 together. We're just going to be considering together from God's word uh, what world conditions are going to be like in the last days. What did God say that that would be like? So let's pray before we jump in here together. Father, we uh, just want to thank you for your word again. We thank you for the privilege we have to be able to uh, even hold a copy of the scriptures in our hands. It is a great freedom and a privilege uh, we don't want to take for granted. So would you please, this morning, as we have an opportunity to just uh, dig in, Lord, and to hear uh, what you had to say about uh, the end of the age, God, that you give us listening ears this morning, that your spirit would even maybe open eyes uh, to some of us for the first time, some things that maybe we haven't considered before. And we ask this in your name. Amen? All right. So as we consider world conditions in the last days, we're going to be talking prophecy this morning. Well, why do we want to do that? Well, prophecy is in the Bible. And if you're not in the Word of God and you're not hearing prophecy being taught or reading it, you're not really studying the Bible. Uh, you're not in a church that's teaching the Bible because prophecy is all over the Scriptures. And there's a few things I want you guys to catch concerning Bible prophecy. First of all, it builds our faith. That's why it's important. That's why we see it all over Scripture. Secondly, it builds up our witness about God's Word, and it also builds up our love and our obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we consider a little bit of the background here in Mark chapter 13, sometimes it's referred to as the Olivet Discourse. That's why I had you guys reading ahead in Matthew chapter 24. It's the same account. Well, Jesus delivered this discourse on the Mount of Olives. So, that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Let's pick it up here in Mark 13, verse 1. It says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. You guys know that the Jews were very proud of their temples? That was their thing. And they were very proud of their temple at this time. Herod's temple lavishly extravagant. Uh, it was renovated just for the Jewish people. The second temple was so beautiful to behold, but there was a problem. It was spiritually empty. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. Jesus' assessment of Israel in the first century is really provided throughout the book of Mark and the Gospels. He speaks into that reality. They had wonderful religious things going on outward, but there was no inward reality. It was a form of religion, but it denied the power thereof. So with their lips, they praised God, but their hearts were what? Far from him. Okay, Jesus came to his own, didn't he? And what did they want to do? Let's have this man crucified, put him to death. We don't like him. Look at verse 2. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. You see, Jesus gave a, you know, a prophecy here concerning the destruction of the second temple. The first temple was based on a conditional prophecy that was given by the Lord that if you abide in me and you do what's right, the temple, it will remain. But if you disobey me and you go after false gods, I will remove you from the land and I will destroy the temple. This prophecy was filled some 300 years later after the destruction of the first temple. So this prophecy that Jesus gave about the destruction of the second temple, once again, Israel fulfilled that conditional prophecy by falling away from the Lord. And the Lord chastens them and talks about the second temple destruction now here, which was actually fulfilled in 70 AD. Now there's a private briefing that takes place. Look at verse 3. We get a little bird's eye view, okay, of what was taking place here with these guys. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, Opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. So we know Peter, James, and John, right? 
They kind of made up that inner circle, okay, of, uh, of the disciples. These were the men that Jesus chose to take along on special situations such as the uh, transfiguration on the mount, special healings, and so on. This was not because God favored them in any special way. The scriptures clearly state that God is not a respecter of persons, right? Before uh, the beginning of time, Jesus had prepared a special ministry for each one of these men. He knew and he invested in them differently because of that. Peter would become the pillar of the church. We had James. You guys know what he did? He was the first martyr for the church. That was pretty big. And then we have John. He outlived all the apostles, and God gave him special revelation. He was the one who wrote the book of Revelation. So the Lord continues to invest into people today within the Christian community. Many have been placed on a fast track of growth. They are growing spiritually and uprightly, like well-nourished plants. But God is pouring his word in uh, into them, showing them secret things, Jeremiah 33.3, and wonderful Psalm 119, verse 10, things, using them powerfully and giving them opportunities. We all know Ephesians 2.10, right? We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is how God works. So these four apostles asked Jesus a private, for this private prophetic briefing. Look at verse 4. They asked, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of all these things being fulfilled? So the apostles wanted to know specifically when the destruction of the temple would take place and what signs they should be looking for. Now, Mark 13 has 37 verses that parallels with Matthew 24, which has a few more details, 51 verses. So Matthew 24.3 and Mark 13.2 record the apostles asking these three questions. One, when will the temple be destroyed? Secondly, what will be the sign of your second coming? And then thirdly, what will be the sign of the end of the age? So Jesus more or less ignored the first question, and then uh, he did not give them the timing, but we read in Luke 21 that Jesus gives them a clue. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then Israel will be scattered, and the time of the Gentiles will begin. So Jesus gives them a broad picture of events, the situations and the world conditions that will exist right before his second coming. So in 70 AD, the Romans, under the leadership of Titus, destroyed the second temple 586 years after its completion. Historical records say that they burned the house of the Lord, and the interior of the temple was filled and lined with gold, okay, all these different gold articles everywhere. And after the Romans burned the temple, the Romans dismantled the temple stone by stone in effort to remove even the gold that had melted into each crevice. So although the temple was burned, Jesus' statement, not one stone would be left upon another, was filled perfectly to the letter. You guys see, thus far, God's prophecies have been literally, actual, physically, and completely fulfilled. Do not expect God's prophecies to be, be fulfilled spiritually, esoterically, or allegorically. Expect for all prophecies to be fulfilled literally, actually, physically, and completely fulfilled as well. So what does Jesus say? Well, he gives us a picture here of the end of the age. Look at verse 5. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and he will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. 
But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my, uh, my sake, and for the testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations, but when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be worried beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So Jesus is defining world events, conditions, situations that will proceed or coincide with his second coming and the end of the age. So the birth of the church to the rapture of the church, this is the period in history which Jesus is referring to in here in Mark chapter 13, verses 5 to 13. Some of the things relating to Bible prophecy that Jesus states in this verse may cause fear in the hearts of some men, but God did not use these things to give us a spirit of fear. As we read this, we should be comforted you see, God is not a God of confusion and fear. God is love, and we know that perfect love casts out fear. So bring all your fears to the Lord, okay? And he will cast them out. Because God, he has a wonderful plan. And he will unfold it perfectly. He will complete your salvation. He will set things right. And there will be hard times, but God will work it all together for the good. So you should be excited about Bible prophecy. It shouldn't scare you. I think that's why a lot of people don't want to go there. They read it and they become fearful. No, that's not what God intended at all. You see, it is God pulling back a veil of time to show you something good. God is totally in control and he knows the beginning from the end. If you guys recall with me, when Jesus told his disciples to get into the boat and go, to the other side. Was that a prophetic statement? You see, Jesus knew that they would arrive on the other side, but he didn't tell them all the details that would occur in between. And once the sea, or they were out at sea, things got a little scary, didn't it? Things got rough, out of control. The disciples started tripping. But Jesus went and he sat upon the mountain and he prayed and he watched. And at the right moment in time, he came walking on the water to rescue them. You see, Jesus told them they would get to the other side. So God will accomplish everything that is right and good just as he would have it to be. So God will bring us to the other side as the world becomes a scary place. Our job is to have faith in him, faith in his word. So at the appointed time, Jesus will come walking, literally, <laughs> upon this planet again. So these are words of comfort. I can't wait for him to come. Okay, I read this stuff, I get excited. Come, Lord Jesus, come. <laughs> so, look at verse 7. He says, do not be troubled, afraid, or alarmed. He tells us again in verse 9, watch out. So be ready and not afraid. Verse 11, do not worry. That means don't be anxious. Verse 13, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Okay, verse 13 is not a salvific statement here, guys. It is not a condition for our salvation, but that we've got to endure the events that are going to come in these times, end times. So God is pointing to us uh, that as the world gets difficult, our job is to persevere through it and to trust God in it and he will rescue us. He will rescue the righteous at the right time. Okay, the rapture of the church. So Jesus told us in John 16, 33, these things that I've spoken to you, um, or I have spoken them to you, that in me, that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. We are going to have trouble. You guys know that's promised? Are you going through it? Good, you should be. The Bible said it's going to happen. We're going to go through it. But he tells us to be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. 
So when things start to happen, you will know that the Lord said it would happen. God is in control. Everything is cool. And God also warns us that the world, that in this world, we will have difficult times, but God will deliver, deliver us. He will save us, and he will accomplish it at the right time. So we live in a fallen world. Kind of a bummer. Not the way God planned things to be, but it's what we chose to do. We live in this fallen world. It has submitted itself to the influence of Satan and the consequences of man's actions. They're all around us, aren't they? Everywhere we look. In 1 Peter 5, verse 10, it says, But may the God of all grace, who called us in his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Do you guys like that verse? I do. <laughs> you see, God has called you to eternal glory. That's pretty exciting. We can trip over this life that's but a vapor, you know, and if you are tripping over it, step back and look at the big picture. Look at God's prophetic word. This brings hope. This should bring peace. See, God has not saved you just to allow you to slip out of his hands. This is a prophetic statement. And God will accomplish it. God will strengthen. And he will establish you. He's promised that. So seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus lives to ever make intercession for us. I love it. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So Jesus will allow us to suffer for a little while, but he himself will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. Luke 24, God himself will come to us just like he came to the men on the road to Emmaus. They were hopeless. They were downtrodden. They were heartbroken. And the Lord himself met them on the road. So at the rapture of the church, when the trump of God sounds, guys, the Lord himself is going to descend and we're going to be caught up in the sky to be with him. And we will be forever with the Lord. So Jesus spoke of world events and situations that characterize these days. In his word, uh, we, it should really produce comfort and not fear. Look at verse 7. It says here that there will be uh, wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, verse 8, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. So Jesus said that the time, uh, in that time, there was a relative uh, world peace. Okay? Shortly afterwards, the world would be engulfed in war. And we have had thousands of world conflicts since that time, haven't we? So, the 20th century... Okay, the 1900s. How many of you guys were born in the 1900s? Okay, most of us. You guys still remember that. Good. Um, it was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. Did you guys know that? The bloodiest part of our world history in the last 100 years. It experienced many wars and much conflict and destruction. It began with World War I, also known as the Great War, when a Serbian zealot uh, killed the Archduke of Austria um, declared war. Uh, Austria declared war then against Serbia, except for seven countries. Uh, they were followed into war by every nation in the world. Um, some students of Bible prophecy, guys like Tim LaHaye, they see this as a fulfillment here of Mark 13, 8. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but you look at things Jesus said would be happening Okay, these are the beginning of sorrows. We definitely see these things happening, okay, the beginning of it. So, but the close of the century, guys, in the year 2000 alone, 100,000 men and women died um, in uh, world conflicts. In the year 2000, the UN had 14 ongoing peacekeeping missions, 28,000 troops, that's a lot of troops, right? 28,000 troops from 38 different countries. Guys, that was a threefold increase from 1999. One year. And it's just been growing since then. Okay. 
um, the United Nations in, uh, International Children's Emergency Fund okay, reports that the government now spends more in four days preparing for war than in a year of helping their neighbors. Think about that. Their budget, annual budget, is $75 million compared to $125 million that's spent just to build one modern-day submarine. Why are there starving people in the world? I don't know. We spend almost $600 billion a year <laughs> on our military. I know why. Do you guys know that currently in the world there are over 400,000 nuclear scientists that have been hired just to build more weaponry? Jesus said in the last days there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. But don't be troubled. The end's not yet, right? Nuclear weapons. Presently, there's enough nuclear bombs in existence to equal 1.3 million Hiroshima explosions. That's crazy, guys. The UN reports that the world's nuclear arsenals contain enough explosives to blast every man, woman, and child upon planet Earth to the equivalent of 15 tons of TNT apiece. I mean, how much do we need, guys? One nuclear submarine carries more explosive force than all the bombs and all the ammunition that exploded in all of the nations during World War II. Just one. And yet, in verse 7, guys, what does Jesus tell us? Do not be frightened. <laughs> Don't be concerned. This is not yet the end. So the end of the world is not going to be some nuclear exchange. Okay? The Bible tells us that. In Mark chapter 13, verse 8, it says there will also be earthquakes in various places. So from the beginning, there's always been earthquakes, right? Always been there. The book of Revelation, yet future, talks about profound earthquakes taking place upon planet Earth during the tribulation. Well, it's interesting that earthquakes are characterized with the last days. Why would he bring that up specifically? Well, if he does, there's something unique. We need to look at it. And this may denote an increase in frequency, okay, magnitude or range of geographical locations of earthquakes in the manner that could be calculated or assessed. But if we just look, since we started to take uh, registering the earthquakes around the world, in the 1970s, there was 4,139 earthquakes. Okay, the 70s. Not that long ago, I was born in the 70s. In the 80s, how many of you guys were born in the 80s? All right, a few of you guys. 7,348. So it almost doubled just in a decade's time. Jesus said there would be many, okay? Earthquakes. That'll be a sign. In the 1990s, there was 16,612. So it more than doubled. The 2000s, there were 22,256. And since then, we've already had over 30,000. And you guys can jump online. They're talking about great earthquakes today. The ones that are 8.0. Uh, 8.0 or bigger just in the last 10 years it's up 256 percent what did jesus say okay so jesus said in the last days there will be earthquakes in various places so it is just a defining factor of world conditions in the last days so it will be in a matter that uh, differentiates itself from times past that's the point that jesus is making and we definitely see that firsthand today. So these will be world events, conditions, and situations. We live in a world that has fallen. It's out of control. It is in rebellion to God. And it lays under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, being Satan. Jesus also mentioned the last part of verse 8 here. There's going to be famines. Okay, and these are the beginning of birth pains. 790 million people suffer from malnutrition in the world. That's way too many, guys. In spite of record high food production, more people go hungry than ever before. You guys know we're throwing food away daily because we don't know how to distribute it fast enough. We have more than we know what to do with and people are starving to death. 460 million people are on the brink of starvation daily, and there's about 200 million children that slip into some form of mental retardation or blindness 
due to a lack of food. The WHO, not the band, the World Health Organization, uh, they estimate that about 4 million people a year die of starvation. Literally that hungry. 4 million people, or about 30 people every minute. So one, two, three, four people just died of starvation. Jesus said what? Again, he does not say that the last days will be a course or a cause of these things, but that these things will be occurring as coming. Okay? They're going to be occurring. We see them occurring. So when a woman goes into labor, contractions and pains signal that something is coming. A child is coming. The child is not yet birthed, but these are the things, our sure sign, that a child is on its way. So if we just step back with what Jesus said would be happening in the last days at his coming, we've got to say, hey, <laughs> it's not here because he's not here, but obviously the signs are. It's happening. And they're getting greater, and they're getting magnified quicker and quicker. Verse 9, okay? These things are a sure sign that the Lord's on his way. Let's look at verse 9. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. So there's going to be persecution he's talking about. Look at verse 11. But when they do arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you'll speak, but whatever is given to you that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So we can see that fact of the Holy Spirit at work in believers in the book of Acts in the early church. We're going to be starting that at the beginning of the year. I encourage you guys, maybe before we jump into the book of Acts, some recommended reading. Okay? Brother Yun wrote a book called The Heavenly Man. Phenomenal read. Things going on right now. Radical things the Holy Spirit's doing today. I'd also encourage you to read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. The accounts of martyrs uh, from the book of Acts you know, to current day. So these books can change your life's perspective. Jesus said that in the world you will have persecution. In America, this is kind of alien to us, isn't it? We enjoy a lot of freedoms here. We do not experience as much real persecution. And ignorantly, we tend to confuse being ostracized or neglected, ignored, or verbally abused with being persecuted for our faith. But it's not the kind of persecution Christians all over the world are experiencing for their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Christians in America, we have been given much grace. And with that, we have much opportunity. We have great responsibility. And the Lord said, to whom much is given, much is required, right? So we have responsibility to educate ourselves in regards to the church worldwide i know it's easy to be self-centered but there's a lot more going on than what's just happening in our lives or our little local church or the church in the valley here no there's one church it is worldwide what is going on in the church we need to know what's happening with our brothers and sisters so we have a responsibility to educate ourselves in those things in china today persecution and murder is committed for anyone professing to be christian in a lot a lot of china we also see in places like Somalia, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia today, uh, India, uh, the same things going on. So in this modern day, Christians are being killed around the world for belief in Jesus Christ. Not mocked, not disenfranchised, murdered, killed, beheaded for their faith in Christ. So the fact that we have been blessed does not give us a license for ignorance. God calls us to responsibility and action. Is verse 10 still true today, guys? And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Have, has that happened? No. It still needs to happen. I want to share some encouraging facts because you guys might be like, that's a bummer. <laughs> some encouraging things. One in ten people on the planet is a Bible-reading, believing stream of Christianity. The numbers of believers in what used to be mission fields now surpasses the number of believers in countries from which missionaries were originally sent. 
That's cool. More missionaries are being sent from non-Western churches than the traditional mission-sending bases in the West. The Protestant church rate in Latin America is well over three times the biological birth rate. That's awesome. Protestants in China grew from about 1 million to over 80 million believers in 50 years. That's awesome. But in sad contrast, in the last 50 years period here in the church of America, we've grown less than 1%. Shame on us. In the 1980s, Nepal was a staunch Hindu kingdom uh, with one small persecuted church. Today, there's hundreds and thousands of believers in churches that have started within each of the more 100 distinct people groups uh, around there. Uh, Some sobering facts for us. There's still over 2 billion people upon this planet that still need to be reached with the gospel. That's a lot. And there are people groups in whose dialect the Bible has not yet been translated. So there are people today who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do about it? Great to know, Pastor. Good study today. Who cares if it's a good study? God has us to know these things for a reason. What are we going to do about it? When it comes to missions, you guys have heard me say it before. You either go or you send people to go. Those are the only two choices. It's black and white. Mark 13, verse 10, and the gospel must be preached to all nations. You guys understand that Jesus is the hope of the world. He is the answer. I know our country this last week had their eyes on a whole lot of other things. Who cares? Jesus is the answer. I wish we would get that undone about things that really matter. See, do you have a heart for the nations who have not heard of Jesus Christ? And what are you going to do about it? If you don't, you think you should pray for one? Probably. So, ask the Lord, what can I do? What is my part? Salvation is for the nations. It's not just for you being blessed to be born in a Christian nation. It's for all nations, for all people. The heart of God, the will of God is that none should perish. That's his heart. That's in his nature. It's the proclamation of the gospel. Salvation is for all, not just Americans. You guys know that America is not even mentioned in the Bible? Unless you listen to false teachers. Anyways, every Christian should be involved in mission work, either as one who is going or one is sending people. You need to be involved. You need to be engaged in the Great Commission. If you have a heart stirred towards a nation, ask God to send you. Why in the heck would God be putting a nation upon your heart if he didn't want you to do something about it? You know? Go. You need to be involved. You need to be engaged in the Great Commission. So pray that God would show you um, what to do. Maybe you're supposed to be a sender. You can provide spiritually, financially, logistically, practical ways to help missionaries. James almost every week gets up here and talks about the Turners. What can we do for them practically? Yeah, we pray for them, we support them. But man, food's expensive down there, so we send them food every once in a while. What can you do practically to help missionaries? Um, Be creative in that way. Uh, Also, if you think about it, guys, you are equally laying up treasures in heaven as you support missionaries. Okay, When the Bema Seat of Christ comes, missionaries are going to receive rewards for their efforts. But if you support and help them, you're going to get a part of that reward. It's yours also. So you can choose to do nothing or you can choose to be a doer of the Word of God. It's one of those things. We just talked a couple weeks ago about being a doer of the Word. We need to do. So you can choose to do something and participate in building the kingdom of God. Jesus also talks about deceivers. He talks about imposters in the last days. 
So when Jesus was asked about the end times, the first thing off his lips was a warning about deceivers that would be claiming to be him. Look at verse 5 again. And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying that I am he, and he will deceive many. So out of compassion and love, out of a shepherd's fatherly heart, Jesus is telling his disciples, be careful, don't get tricked in the last days. The last days will be characterized by spiritual deception, false doctrine, and false teaching from outside the church and from within the church. Okay, so Jesus wants his disciples to be alert and aware to see that they're not being misled. So the anonym of the phrase, take heed here, in the Greek is to be made blind. Don't become blind. Okay? Without some effort on your part to not be deceived. Then you are allowing yourselves to be made blind. And this is not a mere suggestion from Jesus, but it's a severe warning which he asks us to take responsibility. Okay? This is why we're talking about this this morning. We're not to be deceived in the last days. We need our eyes wide open. We need to be discerning what's going on. In 1 Timothy 4.1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So why are people leaving the faith? There's a lot of church kids, and we hear about how many are walking away from the Lord once they go on to college, higher education, they're being taught other things. Where are these other teachings, doctrines coming from, guys? One of the biggest ones, we send <laughs> our kids off to college, and they go into a class, and you have a liberal professor in there saying that there is no God. How can you even, that's just stupid to even believe in a God, a higher power. Do you not know that nothing blew up? I mean, that's stupid. But that's how stupid the world is and how blind, uh, take heed, do not be blinded. We're going to believe that there's no creator. Creation just happened from nothing. I mean, that's just lunacy. <laughs> Anyways, you guys get the point, right? We need to be aware. That's what Jesus is saying. This is going to happen in the last days. We need to be aware. So God is concerned for us and he wants to be aware of, a, of what's going on. So he clearly states it, and he leaves no room for implications. Some will fall away from the faith because they've paid attention to, or they have tampered with, or they have listened to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So, the New Testament speaks of one doctrine, doesn't it? One teaching, and that's the doctrine of grace. That is it, guys. We are saved by grace through faith. That is what it's all about. That is the gospel message. That's what Jesus told us we must go teach all people. You see, demons have multiplied doctrines manifested primarily in the ideology, ideology and false religious idea that there's many ways to God. The New Age movement is very prevalent and strong today, and many people are believing in it. There's New Age churches in our own community, Fox Valley Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. They talk about how great and how wonderful Jesus was, and how great of a teacher or prophet he was, an amazing teacher. We should listen to what he has to say. In fact, they will profess to love the Lord. But they are not talking about the same Jesus Christ in the Bible. They do not worship Jesus as God incarnate. They do not adhere to the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. They have listened to doctrines of demons. Demons will declare to us that there are multiple ways to be saved. They want to defame and destroy Jesus. They mar the image of Jesus. They mar, they beat, they maim, they destroy humanity. And it is a lie from the pit of hell. So it is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. 
Do you guys know that he is the only way to the Father? Period. So no one ever offered their life as a sacrifice, predicted their own death and resurrection from the dead. But Jesus Christ, he's the only one. And if you do not believe this, then you're not saved. If you are a Christian, or have already become a Christian, or you think you are one, and somehow you decide in the reading of scriptures and study of other religions that are out there, that, hey, there are more than one way to get to heaven than Jesus Christ. Then you were never saved. Romans 10.9 states to us that if you confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is the master of creation of the universe, that he is God. You believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, and that Jesus is God's only unique son and only unique savior of the world. I see people come to the Lord all the time in ignorance. Many get saved, never fully understanding the doctrine of grace or things of the cross or the deity of Christ. They just come saying, hey, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. In Jesus, I know you're him. <laughs> I believe. I hear this gospel message. This is resonating. This is making sense for some reason. You're my Lord. I'm giving you my all. I'm believing in you. Um, they come to the Lord through that. But if someone who claims to be a Christian somehow decides that there's other ways and professes other ways that you can be saved, they're not saved. There's one way, guys. He is Jesus Christ, so don't call it Christianity. Mark 13, 6. Jesus said what? For many will come in my name, saying that I am he, and he will deceive many. So many people in the last days will be claiming to be Christ. So Christ, Greek or Hebrew word, Messiah, um, not one uh, to be, uh, or no one can be Messiah if you think about it. Because weren't there a bunch of prophecies that God gave concerning what the Messiah would do? Who he would be? Only Jesus Christ fulfilled those prophecies, guys. Only he did it. There's a Syracuse University professor who researched contemporary religions, uh, religious status in America. He announced that there's over 2,000 practicing gurus that call themselves Christ. That's a lot, guys. First, uh, this doesn't make sense. I think it's kind of stupid and ridiculous because Messiah had to be a Jew. And we have over 2,000 Gentile Americans <laughs> calling, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Second, they had to be born of a virgin where? In Bethlehem, <laughs> okay? So he had to grow up in Nazareth of Galilee. And most importantly, he had to fulfill all the prophecies about being the Messiah. Scarier than people believing that there are these Messiahs out there are these people that are actually following these guys who say that they're the Messiah. You see, people in our own communities believe in false messiahs today, and this belief comes directly from where? From demons. That's what the Bible says. So what do we do? We combat a lie with what? With truth. And the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. So when the church gathers together to pray, it is a declaration against the kingdom of darkness. So learn the truth, stand in the truth, proclaim the truth. We're told in 2 Corinthians 10 that we have to tear down every lofty speculation that exalts itself against the knowledge of God by praying and speaking the truth. Some of you guys might not like this message this morning. This is the truth. We need to know the truth to be able to proclaim the truth. We need to know the truth so we know how we ought to be praying Lies are in the church today, guys. And it's in the leadership. A survey was taken of 520 clergy and laymen of the National Council of Churches. It showed that only a little over half believed that Jesus were divine and 62% believe in an afterlife. Guys, these are pastors. 
McCall Magazine took a survey of 3,000 Protestant clergymen. Okay? We would be in the Protestant vein. The article stated that a considerable number rejected the idea of a personal God. A majority of the youngest group cannot be said to believe in a virgin birth in regard to Jesus um, or him being divine. A survey was taken of pastors um, who didn't believe in the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And from that younger group of pastors that were surveyed, 51 of them were Methodists, or 51% of Methodist uh, pastors believe that, 35 Presbyterians, 33 Baptists, and 30% Episcopalian. That's scary, guys. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, now, if Christ is preached... That he, had, or that he has been raised from the dead? How do some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Why even be a pastor? Why even teach if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Completely po- pointless. There is no hope. There is no power in the gospel if Christ did not rise from the dead. So if Christ did not physically and literally rise from the dead, then we of all people should be most pitied because our faith is in vain and there is no hope of eternity. And there are many leaders within the church today who call themselves Christians and they deny this doctrine. So I would say don't call it church. Don't call it Christianity. The Barna Research Group Uh, took a poll of 601 randomly selected senior pastors representing over 50 denominations. It showed only 51% of them held to a biblical worldview defined as agreeing to the following. They would agree and embrace the accuracy of biblical teaching that the Bible is actually true. Secondly, they would agree with the sinless nature of Jesus. They would believe in the literal existence of Satan. They would believe in the... uh, omniscience of God, that they would believe in salvation by grace alone, and they would believe in a personal responsibility to evangelize. Guys, only 51%, only 51%, just over half, would say, yeah, we agree to that. Those are just a few of the core essentials to the Christian faith, to what the Bible says. Jesus said, what would be happening in the last days? This is happening in the church. You see, Barna also stated that 9% of those who characterize themselves as being born again uh, held to a worldview, or a a biblical worldview. So the six definitions noted above are just core essentials of Christianity, and it's not a list of all of them. They're just the core essentials to historic Christian faith. So if you reject the core essentials, you don't call it Christianity. You just don't. Second Peter 2.1 says this, listen carefully. But there will also be false prophets among you, even as there will be false teachers among you. Where's that? The church. He was writing to the church. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them or bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And by covetousness, they will exploit you, the church, with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. But I do know God's going to judge false teachers. I like that part. Okay, In James 3.1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you will receive a stricter judgment. Okay? We also know that the last days will be characterized by these doctrines of demons taught by people from without and within the church. And within the church, people will arise and do not want to hear truth anymore. That's what's going to happen. I want you guys to turn to 2 Timothy with me. And we'll start to wrap it up here. Second Timothy chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 3.
2 Timothy 4.3, it says, For a time will come, and the context here is talking about last days, time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up teachers for themselves. And they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they will be turned aside to fables. Say what? Really? The church is going to let this happen. We're going to heap up teachers for ourselves because we want to be told certain things. You guys understand that 1 Peter 3.15 says the church needs to be a pillar of truth, a foundation of truth within our society. If we have churches that aren't willing to stand upon the word of God because we don't want to offend people or we're too scared that you know people aren't going to tithe, they're not going to give if we don't tell them what they want to hear. Shame on us. Because what are you doing? You're allowing these doctrines of demons to seep in. Because let me tell you what, self always equals sin. And that's what people want. God, what can you do for me? It's all about me. It's about my kingdom. You see, we need to be very careful. So, if we're to know the truth, that we're not tossed to and fro, what should we do? Let's turn to Acts 17. We need to become a Berean. What do I mean by becoming a Berean? Acts 17. Let's look at verse 10 here. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now verse 11 says, They were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent men, or prominent women, as well as men. So the Spirit of God called the Bereans more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. I desire that to be said of us. Not in a prideful way. Hey, we know the word well. We're holding to the truth. But in humility, guys, discerning the times in which we live and knowing what God has warned us, that we are humbling ourselves and we are being that much more diligent because we have been warned that we will be deceived. Okay, We need to buckle down. We need to be searching the scriptures daily. Like these guys. Did you guys catch that they receive the word with all eagerness? I know a lot of people receiving the word isn't even a priority. I'll make it to church if I can. I'll study if I have time. And that's what we're to be given to, guys. We need it. So they wanted to hear the word. That was something that was unique about these Bereans. They wanted to hear about the Messiah. And when Paul was done teaching at the end of the day, what did they do? They examined what he said. They went back to the scriptures to find out if what he said lined up with the word of God. So the Bible does not commend you for listening to a man. The Bible commends you for listening to the word of God. So any Bible teacher that you hear, if it sounds suspicious, or you're just not sure, you need to open up the Word of God and study it out for yourself. Investigate it. So in other words, um, (laughs) if you have a preacher, the words of a preacher, a teacher, pastor, does not line up with the Word of God, you reject that Word. You reject him. You reject his ministry. So the Word of God will testify against us if we ever depart from it. So the benefits of becoming a Berean, after examining the scriptures, what did they do? The Bereans believed. Doesn't God want us to be believing? Absolutely. We also see many Christians today believe that by examining the scriptures that they're going to be let down, that the Bible's not going to stand up to the scrutiny, that they may find contradictions, that there may be errors. The Bible's not afraid of anybody. You guys know that? No one. Search it freely. Search it daily. And it is not a sin to have questions. What you do with those questions determines whether it's sin or an act of faith. So if you let those questions go, 
okay, dwelling in your mind, the enemy is sure to come in and to add lies to it and to bring doubt to those questions. So all he needs is the tiniest doubt on your part to plant a seed of deception and more doubt. So investigate it immediately. Look into the word of God and find the answers to those questions. Strengthen your faith. Verify the validity of the Bible for yourself. It's your responsibility to be a Berean. A lot of you guys have heard of Josh McDowell. He had a great young mind. He did not believe the New Testament as being valid. And being an intellectual student, he endeavored to dispute it. He investigated it thoroughly. The result, he got saved. (laughs) He looked into the claims. It's true. Sir William Ramsey, a historian of highest esteem in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke claimed to be giving a historical account to the events that he was writing about. Well, Ramsey didn't believe that Luke was a historian or that the events in the Gospel of Luke were wrote, wrote historically accurate. So Ramsey went on a journey of the places recorded by Luke and he investigated the events. And at the end of the journey, Ramsey pronounced Luke as the greatest historian the world had ever known and that every word of the New Testament is true and he has become a great defender of the faith. So, the Bible's not afraid of you. Investigate it. Be educated in it. Especially in these last days. Certain government agencies, they teach their employees to spot counterfeit dollars by forcing them to study just a single one. Every aspect of a real one. They never show them a counterfeit dollar. They become so acquainted with the real thing that when the counterfeit ones show up, they know it's not genuine. Just like that. That's what I want for you guys. I want you to be grounded in the Word of God. Because I see it. And hopefully you are grounded in the world word that you see it too. There's people being tossed to and fro. Brothers and sisters in Christ that love Jesus that are being tossed because they haven't studied. They haven't been grounded. They haven't been a Berean. We need to do that, guys. We need to stir each other up to do that. So we've been given a wonderful gift and responsibility. Study the Word of God. So when the deceptions come, you will know in an instant. You can stand up. You can tear down every lofty speculation that results itself against the knowledge of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So labor in the word of God and love the God of the word. Amen? So Father, I thank you for this little insight that you gave us from what took place on the Mount of Olives that day between you and these uh, few disciples of yours there. God, I thank you that you were forthright and that they wrote it down that we would know as followers, as your disciples today, what would be going on around us, what world conditions would be like. God, we don't know the day or the hour, and we're not saying we do, but you told us to know the times and the seasons. God, you shared your heart. You've spoken to us because you love us. God, you've given us your prophetic word to encourage us, to build us up. God, and we know, we look around and things are getting crazy. The things you said would be happening, they're happening right before our eyes. And we want to be ready, we want to be faithful. So would you please just stir up in us a hunger, maybe a renewed hunger for some of us to dig into your word like never before, to be able to stand in truth, to pass that truth on to other loved ones, to our children, to our co-workers, to our neighbors. We know the gospel needs to go forth. Lord, you may be even calling some to go on the mission field. God, we pray that you would make that calling very clear to them, (laughs) that they would be obedient. And then, then we could help send And for us who haven't engaged in gospel business, Lord, 
Would you show us practically how that would look for us? How we can personally engage or be about kingdom business, about your business, Father. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning that we've been able to come together in your name, Jesus. God, worship was sweet. Father, being able to pray for Roxanne and her parents, Lord, what a gift to us this morning. And what a gift, Father, to be able to study your word together. Lord, may your Holy Spirit just enlighten, Father, and help us to live out these truths for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Amen.